Hello, Locally Sourced Science listeners. My name is Liz Mahood, and I will be your host for this episode. With COVID cases on the rise, Locally Sourced Science revisits the virus. In today's episode, we'll hear two interviews from Locally Sourced Science's Candace Limper, a PhD candidate studying immunology and infectious diseases. The first interview we will hear was originally aired on Candace's own podcast, Excelsior, on April 22nd. This interview is with Dr. Katherine McComas, a professor in the Cornell Department of Communication. We'll hear Dr. McComas speak about her research into how we perceive risk and how this influences an individual's decisions to follow risk recommendations or not. Our second interview of the episode is of Dr. Allison Stout, a veterinary researcher at Cornell University on COVID and felines. Dr. Stout will talk about how cats get COVID and what you should do if you are worried about COVID in your household and have a cat. First up, here's Candace Limper interviewing Dr. Katherine McComas. Hello, and welcome back to the Excelsior Podcast special series on the global SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. Have you wondered how reading the news on SARS-CoV-2 affects your health and your perception of risk? How often you should be posting information to social media on the virus to be helpful to others? Today, we take a different approach to understanding the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic by interviewing Dr. Katherine McComas, a communication scientist and professor of communication at Cornell University. Let's begin. My name is Katherine McComas, and I'm a professor in the Department of Communication at Cornell University, and my research focuses on risk communication, particularly how we communicate and understand risks related to the environment, to public health, to science and technology. And I'm particularly interested in how people respond to risk information, reasons why they choose to follow risk recommendations when they choose not to follow risk recommendations, who they trust, how people perceive risk. These are all things that I've studied. How do you study how somebody perceives risk? Well, I'm a social scientist, so I use methodologies like interviews, survey research. I do some experimental work. I also am a people watcher. I observe people and interactions. And then I also do research called content analysis, where you, for instance, look at how media are covering risks and you kind of design a survey for the story and you code it in different ways to understand what media are emphasizing in their coverage of risks and and what's absent in media coverage of risks. So when people take these surveys, is it something that people do voluntarily or I guess you send out random emails or is it something like, like Facebook? Yeah, no, there's different ways that you collect the data and some are, for instance, national surveys uh, that would be sort of a random selected population of U.S. adults. Some are also more targeted. We recently did some research in Louisiana to understand Louisiana residents' perceptions related to coastal land loss, and that was very targeted around people who lived both in the state and then also in areas that were projected to be more affected, for instance, by sea level rise. And so those were more targeted. Sometimes it's also a more specific type of sampling where 
people recommend others that are particularly involved in a situation. It really kind of depends upon what questions that you're asking, what sample then you target. But yeah, it's absolutely voluntary. (laughs) Are there factors that influence whether people will care about something? Absolutely, for sure. I mean, there's lots of reasons why people are paying attention to, to something or not paying attention to something. And that's something often that scientists get very frustrated about because they wonder, why aren't people paying attention to this issue? Um, why are they spending so much time paying attention to that other issue? Over time, we've you know developed theories and hypotheses for what makes people pay attention to, to say, certain risks over others. And it's often some of the things are if people believe that there's a connection to themselves, that they're more likely to, to pay attention to it. Um, if they feel like there's something that they can do in relation to the risk, then they're more likely that they pay attention to it. So it's really this question of how, how connected is it to them and can they do something about it? Those are two predictors of people paying attention to, to a risk. There's other times when something is very high profile that it, it really garners people's attention, whereas normally they may not pay attention to it. We might call those teachable moments where more people are paying attention to a risk. And so you have more of an opportunity to to reach people that normally wouldn't be paying attention to it. Would you say that what's going on right now with the spread of the new novel coronavirus is a teachable moment or is it something that people cared about before? Or I don't I don't know. Are people studying that now even? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think when you have a high profile event like the coronavirus uh, pandemic, that you you definitely have more people um, paying attention. And what we really look at from a communication perspective is is information seeking behaviors. So there's sort of passive reception of information, and then there's active seeking of information. And depending upon whether somebody's passively just sort of looking at things uh, that might show up on their, say, social media feed versus they're actively seeking out information on, say, coronavirus or vaccines or, you know, what I can do to protect myself. It tends to then relate to different types of information processing, what people do in their minds with that information. And so if they're actively seeking information, it's more likely than that they'll, what we call systematically process that information. They'll spend more time thinking about that information and and weighing that information versus the other type of more passive uh, reception, which we call heuristic processing of information, which is just more kind of the automatic way that people catalog information is credible or not credible, or they pay attention to it or not. Some of the scholars in psychology, like Daniel Kahneman, wrote a well-known book called Thinking Fast, Slow, which describes decades of research from the decision sciences that look at system one versus system two thinking, which he calls it. And system one is sort of this heuristic processing, this kind of automatic processing of information versus system two thinking, which is much more systematic, elaborative, and tends to have longer impacts on attitudes and behaviors. And so kind of coming back to coronavirus right now, you've got more people that may be actively seeking information. The question is, when they get that information, are they elaborating it and kind of weighing that information in relation to their circumstances or circumstances of people they care about? Or is the information kind of processed in more of the system one kind of automatic processing where people are judging it as credible or not credible, depending upon, for instance, who the source is? 
So those are some of the things, for instance, that somebody who studies risk communication might be paying attention to right now. Are there studies going on? People are collecting data now to look at how people are perceiving these risks and how they're seeking information and who they're trusting for information. This might be obvious, but I just want to make sure that if you're passively seeking information, it's less, I guess it's not as good as if you're actively seeking information, given that you might like stay in your house, for example. Well, if you're passively seeking information, it just means that people, there might be different effects of that way of processing. It might be more, as you said, kind of, we call it heuristic, less effortful, really kind of, they're not really thinking through so to speak. And so it, it may not be an enduring behavior. And so, yeah, if, if you're passively getting that and you're trying to say, you know, what does this mean to me in terms of my own behaviors, whether I should leave the house or not, and really weighing that, um, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily not doing the right thing. It just may mean that you're not really processing it in relation to you. So for instance, if somebody that you trust, say Governor Cuomo of New York, is saying, don't leave your house, and you really trust that, and you, you get that information, and you passively process that, but you still stay in your house because you believe that he's a credible source, then we could say that that's, a, say, a good public health outcome. Alternatively, if you don't trust him, and you don't trust him because, for instance, he's not your politics, and you, you dismiss that information at the outset rather than really listening to what he's saying, which would be the more systematic, but you passively kind of dismiss it as not credible because you don't trust the source, then that could lead to the negative public health outcome. So it really kind of depends upon your individual characteristics also as to whether or not, say, that passive information processing could lead to a positive or negative public health outcome. I think a lot of people are feeling that they can't do anything just being at home and not interacting with others, but if people are ingesting information online, do you even think that posting stuff online will help other people be more active in reading information? Yeah, I think that there's different uh, different things and, and some different ways of consuming information. And one, there was a great editorial in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago by a professor in Oregon named Ellen Peters. And she was talking about the anxiety that can be created through a continuous consumption of, say, coronavirus statistics. That, uh, and her research has shown that people who are paying so close attention to all of the statistics um, and want to kind of be up on the statistics all the time have greater levels of anxiety. And I think that that's something when we kind of imagine the effects of information, we can imagine that the effects of information can go on our our own attitudes and beliefs and our emotions. Um, they can also lead to different types of behaviors. So I, I think that people need to be mindful of, of how they're consuming information and whether those patterns of information consumption are leading to higher levels of fear or anxiety or worry. It may be that that's an important factor because that then means that people are paying more attention to information that's telling them to, for instance, stay home or to wash your hands or practice social distancing. But research also shows that if our emotions get the better of us, that it's very hard to kind of process those other 
messages about what to do because the emotions override the what we call the cognitive response of kind of the thinking through of what we can do. And so the aspect of just reading the scary news and without having some of the calming measures that that give people something to do in the face of this, I think it's it's you know it's very it can be very dangerous for people's mental health and well-being. And so the best risk message is not only share information about the risk, but also provide what we call efficacy information, things that people can do to mitigate their exposure to that risk, to have some control in their life over what's happening. So there's that in relation to their own personal health and well-being and their family's health and well-being. And then you see a lot of messages about what people can do to help address this larger public health crisis. And so that's where you're seeing so much emphasis on volunteer activities and what people can do to try to help alleviate the risks of the wider public. And I think these are our natural pairings of both the increase in concern and the fear and the worry, and also having something to do is a very, not only therapeutic because it's substantial way to deal with the anxiety and the fear because it gives people some control over a situation that seems very uncontrollable. That's a really good point. I didn't think of how like consuming so much information could just be adding to people's anxiety. Oh yeah, absolutely. I try to to limit myself to once a day to really keep up with it because it's not changing fast enough that it's going to affect me in my day-to-day life here. And just watching those numbers tick up, it increases worry and anxiety and makes you feel all that much more vulnerable and, and um, unable to do anything. Yeah, almost debilitating. Debilitating is the word. Absolutely. So I guess limit limit time online looking at coronavirus information. I think it's it's like the types of information. I mean, not all the information is about that. There's also efforts to put out stories of hope and optimism because different types of information can elicit different types of emotions in people. And some are more sadness, anger, hope, optimism, anxiety, worry, cheerfulness, happiness. These emotions relate to also different types of of behaviors. And some emotions lead people to turn much more inwardly, um, like sadness. That's one that doesn't really lead to much active responses. Anger is an emotion that can lead people to be more active and sort of outwardly facing to want to change. And so I think that we think about the coronavirus information writ large, you really have to think about it more discreetly about what type of information. Is it is it statistics related to people getting sick? Is it is it stories of people getting well? Is it stories of people helping one another? And it's not to say that you know we just need to have a barrage of of stories, you know, about happy stories that that somehow overshadow the fact that this is a very, you know, sad and very, you know, dangerous public health crisis. But I think that people, when they're looking at their consumption of, of news, have to make sure that, that I guess, uh, you, they have the well-rounded diet, <laughs> that you're not only just consuming the bad news, but you're also finding the stories of hope and optimism too, because at the other end, you have to get out at the other end of this, feeling with your own health and well-being. 
Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Excelsior. Thank you again to our guest, Dr. McComas, for teaching us about risk, sociological research, and giving some tips on maintaining mental sanity during the pandemic. You can follow us on Twitter, Scarlett Lee at DVM underscore Scarlett, or Candace Limper at Limper Science. To follow more of our thoughts on SARS-CoV-2, email us any questions you may have about the current outbreak at Excelsior, E-X-C-E-L-L-S-I-O-R, 2018 at gmail.com. Subscribe to stay tuned for future episodes covering all aspects of this pandemic. If you are just joining us, you just heard Candace Limper interview Dr. Katherine McComas. Dr. McComas researches how individuals perceive risk and how this influences their decisions to follow risk recommendations. Next up, you'll hear Candace again, this time interviewing Dr. Allison Stout. Here's locally sourced sciences Scarlett Lee with an introduction to the interview. Welcome to another episode of Locally Sourced Science. Today, we return to the topic of COVID-19, this time taking a rather feline angle. You may have heard about cats getting COVID-19 on the news. So what happens when cats are infected? And should we be concerned? How many cats have been infected? And what should you do if you're infected with COVID-19 and have a cat in your household? Reporter and Cornell PhD student, Candace Limper interviews Dr. Allison Stout, a veterinarian at Cornell researching feline coronaviruses, to answer these questions and more. I primarily study animal coronaviruses, but our lab, of course, is focused also on the zoonotic coronaviruses, including SARS-CoV-2. So I noticed that you recently gave a presentation at the Cornell COVID Summit. I did, yeah. So we have, our lab has been very focused, obviously, on the new coronavirus. So my research specifically, I have a project collaborating with a veterinarian in New York City to look at seroprevalence uh, to SARS-CoV-2 in cats. And so we know that cats are susceptible to the virus, but we don't know so much at the moment in the population. And so every so often we'll see cases that keep popping up or animals that have tested positive owned animals. And so we've been collaborating with a vet where there is actually a lot of the hospitals that back in March and April were seeing COVID patients. And so the veterinarian we're working with also has a lot of clientele that are doctors, nurses that would have been working on the front lines. And so kind of to understand in what would we would essentially consider a pretty high risk population, what their pets might look like and specifically their cats. So you said you're looking for a zero positive. What does that mean? So we are not actually looking for virus itself. We're looking for essentially a previous exposure. So after infected to the virus, body will mount an immune response, and then we can look and try and find that immune response to see how many animals have been exposed. So how many samples have you gotten so far? Just over 50 samples. And from that, we have data on about 29 of them. 
We, um, without going, I guess, into too much specifics, we do know that there are some positives from that, but there's more that we're still, you know, we still have more to be run and to look at. Um, and then the other part of some of this is how long, so similar to, we see all the news reports of looking at how long do humans have antibody responses, how long do those last, those same questions kind of apply to cats as well, how long do those antibody responses last, and so that's a second component of our research at the moment. So the symptoms in cats, is it the same as in humans? In a number of the cases that have been reported in animals, it's a, described as a respiratory disease. So coughing, sneezing, nasal discharge, similar to that. But what's also interesting in cats is that they have their own coronavirus. So they have a species-specific feline coronavirus. And similar in many ways to SARS-CoV-2, most animals, most cats that are infected with feline coronavirus end up with a mild disease. It's, in this case, it's a GI disease, so gastrointestinal. Um, and generally, those cats recover just fine. We don't really worry too much about them. Uh, but then there's a subset of cats that, for whatever reason, they develop systemic disease from feline coronavirus. And so when they go that path, they develop what's called feline infectious peritonitis. And so underlying that disease is essentially the development of systemic vasculitis. And then these cats, at the moment, almost it's almost always fatal for these cats. They'll develop fluid in their abdominal cavity, around their heart, for instance. They'll have liver involvement and liver failure, kidney failure. They can have issues with their eyes and inflammation there. They can have neurological complications. And so kind of all of the things that we start to see these similar case reports with SARS-CoV-2 that, you know, there's involvement beyond just the respiratory tract. And so kind of some mysteries, I guess, with coronaviruses, but also what makes them interesting and also very challenging, though, for the doctors and nurses that are handling and managing these patients and trying to help those who have become infected. It seems like right now we're getting closer and closer to a vaccine. Um, I was just wondering if there's a vaccine for cats already. Feline coronavirus, there was some interest in developing a vaccine for feline coronavirus. That work pretty much been halted. And while I believe you can actually still buy a vaccine, it's not recommended. The reason it's not recommended is that in cats, one of the ongoing areas of research is this process called antibody-dependent enhancement. And so essentially, the development of antibody and then the non-neutralizing of the virus leads to moving the virus into a cell type called the macrophage and then distributing that and making the disease essentially worse. And so there's, of course, more research needed in that area and for the development of a feline coronavirus vaccine, but that at the moment is not recommended. Now, if we consider vaccines for SARS-CoV-2, there has been some recent interest also in developing a vaccine for cats. 
for a number of reasons. One, that we do know they are infected. So I think they could be a potential model for human vaccines um, and for preclinical testing. Um, and then the other kind of considering if we need to keep the virus out of, you know, additional animal populations, not saying that there would be a reservoir in cats by any means, but, you know, something to be thinking about. Thanks for listening to our interview with Dr. Allison Stout of Cornell University. We learned today about the role of cats in the COVID-19 pandemic and specifically how cats can become infected and develop antibodies to COVID-19 when their owners are infected. Furthermore, we learned about the importance of a One Health approach, considering both animal and human health in combating the global COVID-19 pandemic. Thanks for tuning in and stay safe out there. Remember to wear your masks. Do you have anything that you want to add that you want people to know? So I guess, so one of the things I'm really interested in is the concept of One Health. And so that's, you know, keeping animals, humans, and the environment safe and healthy. And so I think as we continue with SARS-CoV-2 and battling the pandemic. I mean, I think taking that approach is really important to always remember. I mean, thinking about the mink right now in Europe and what that means and thinking about our food supply and how, you know, we prevent future pandemics. I just wanted to uh, ask more questions about the One Health. What do you mean by that? Like, how can, I guess, everyday people consider that to be part of their life? Sure. Um, So I think there's kind of two ways to think about it. The first that most people think about is how we share diseases. And so if that's something like SARS-2, how can we, you know, if I'm as a person and I get infected and now I, my cat is also infected, what does that mean? Um, You know, we don't want our cat then to go out and infect wildlife if that were to be a possibility. Or if we think about something like antimicrobial resistance, for instance, and kind of the interconnections there between, you know, what is used personally versus on larger scales versus in hospitals and kind of that almost a systems thinking type process and how do we make changes that are, you know, best for human health, animal health, and environmental health. And then there's a book that came out probably about 10 years now at this point called Zubiquity. And the woman who wrote it was a cardiologist and essentially parallels all of these diseases that we see across humans and animals. And so She not only focuses on infectious diseases, but additional things such as she talks about a case of a um, overeating beagle, I believe, and what, you know, beagles are notorious. They will eat themselves to death if they could. And so what does that mean for somebody who's doing obesity research, for instance? In parrots, for instance, they tend to, if they get stressed, they will pick their feathers out. So, you know, can we learn from that for anxiety in humans? And then there's other cases of cardiovascular disease. And what can we learn from dogs that have 
condition known as dilated cardiomyopathy. And so kind of drawing these parallels that, you know, just because we think of animals and our pets, I guess, as so different, in reality, we share a lot of the same diseases. And I think that's, you know, I bring up feline coronavirus and the outcomes of that for a similar purpose that you know, we've had this disease in cats for 60 years that in a subset of cats is that we know is lethal and causes systemic disease. And so what can we learn from that to apply currently to patients? And likewise, going then the other way that what can we learn from humans to go back and help cats and vice versa? I mean, there's, I'm using that as one example, but other diseases that are out there that, you know, if we kind of use back and forth thinking and collaboration to solve challenges. Well, hopefully more people take that into consideration, whether it's them interacting with their environment, looking at pet diseases and how it correlates to humans and vice versa. If people want to find you, where can they find you? Yeah, um, so I am on Twitter. My Twitter is AllisonStout19, so you can follow me there. We do have our lab website, blogs.cornell.edu forward slash fight, F-I-P, um, and that's pretty new, but you can find us there. Well, thank you, Allison, for your time. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. It was great. Thanks, Candice. As a reminder, today we are talking with Dr. Allison Stout, a researcher at Cornell focusing on feline coronaviruses. You just heard Candace Limper interviewing Dr. Allison Stout about COVID and felines. Thank you for listening to this episode of Locally Sourced Science. On today's episode, you heard Candace Limper interview Dr. Allison Stout and Dr. Katherine McComas. I, Liz Mahood, was your host. We thank Jill Lewis for the introduction and Blue Dot Sessions and Poddington Bear for the music. If you'd like to learn more about the research featured on today's episode, listen to archive episodes, or download our podcast, head to our website at www.locallysourcedscience.org.